Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 257 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. That's Crow with an E. Like our page and respond to postings at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. And join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990. Just follow the instructions. prn.fm has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805 and leave a message, your name, and indicate that it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners, so don't be shy. I'd like to thank the new donors who joined in June. I'll thank you individually next week. I don't have all the information from Patreon yet. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or you can commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com where we are also Infectious Myth. We appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information that you're gleaning, for the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas and challenges to others. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. And now let's go to a doctor who has an awful lot of experience and some of the same concerns about the coronavirus panic that I do. Dr. Thomas Cowan, MD, is a longtime holistic physician who has studied and written about many subjects in medicine, including nutrition, homeopathy, anthroposophical medicine, and herbal medicine. He's author of Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, the principal author of The Fourfold Path to Healing, and co-author with Sally Fallon of the Nourishing Traditions Book of Baby and Child Care. Dr. Cowan has served as vice president of the Phys Physicians Association for Anthroposophic Medicine and is a founding board member of the Western A. Price Foundation. He also writes the Ask the Doctor column in Wise Traditions in Food Farming and the Healing Arts, which is the quarterly magazine of the Western A. Price Foundation. And he's lectured throughout the United States and Canada. He currently practices medicine in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you, David. And I, I just want to start by saying how much I appreciated your work in this current fiasco. And I think you're one of the real heroes, if there are any, of this story. Yes, I feel like I've done my share of banging my head against a, a very hard wall. I'll bet. Um, but it has been a rewarding experience in, in, in some ways, and I think it's really raised people's awareness. And I, and I guess we'll get to some of the consequences of, um, of this, um, uh, you know, fiasco, pandemonium, pan, pandemonium, pandemic. But let's talk a little bit first about your background. First of all, maybe you can tell me what anthroposophic medicine is, because that's one thing I don't know. Yeah, anthroposophic medicine is the medicine that was 
essentially based on the work of, of Rudolf Steiner, who was a guy who lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He was the guy who started uh, biodynamic agriculture and the Waldorf School movement, and basically a, a pretty different way of seeing the world. I, I would point out, though, that I, um, just to clarify, I don't currently associate or call myself an anthroposophical doctor because uh, 20 or so years ago, I had a pretty significant split with what you could call orthodox anthroposophical medicine. You know, okay. like a lot in life, there's, there's often a brilliant founder and then the followers mess it up. In yes. fact, in fact, I, uh, you might be interested in this. Somebody just sent me a quote from the founder of, of chiropractic, a guy named Palmer. I've mm -hmm. never seen this before. The quote was, if the germ theory was true, there would be nobody alive to believe in it. <laughs> yes. Now, that's, that's... You know, anyways, I, I split with them for a number of reasons, but one of them was I simply couldn't uh, accept the hypothesis that HIV caused AIDS, and they all did. And so that was essentially the, our final connection. So, you know, but anyway, so I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time with okay. me. Well, well, it's 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 nice to uh, know that. And so, um, you've obviously been thinking about the germ theory and some of these pandemic theories for a long time. Uh, did you start out as a pretty alternative guy, like when you were studying in medical school, or or did you start from a more, um, I don't know if I want to say traditional path, because modern medicine is not exactly traditional, but of a more mainstream path? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I have a f sort of funny biography around this, because, you know, I grew up in a very medical environment. My father and grandfather were both dentists and most of their friends were actually very well-known physicians in the Detroit area. One in fact invented the laser that for use in gynecology which is huge mm -hmm. right and another one was the head uh, oncologist at at a you know one of the biggest cancer centers in Detroit and another was uh, had a cancer clinic until he got indicted for Medicare fraud. <laughs> uh, that, anyway, that seems quite common. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, I grew up around this, and I don't know why, but I just, I, I had, I was thinking about this. I, I, this may have nothing to do with it, but when I was 15, we were part of this, this golf club, very well known, and they had had PGA tournaments on this golf club, and. They were all part of this, them and their, you know, very wealthy friends, which I was not, our family was not wealthy, but I was a very good golfer. And it, at age 15, I won the championship of this club. I beat all of these doctors and lawyers and everybody. And I did it because I, my mind was better. That's a funny thing to say, but that's why I did it. And mm -hmm. I at that point realized that these supposedly brilliant people i <laughs> i don't know i could beat them uh, and anyways then i went to college and all i could think of was i didn't want to be a doctor because i didn't want to be like them 
And then I uh, went to the Peace Corps to try to figure out if I could do anything else besides be a doctor, because it was sort of itching at me, right? Mm -hmm. It could be. And I, I can say this, I think, with confidence. I may be the only person alive who, while living in a mud hut in Swaziland teaching gardening, was exposed to the work of Weston Price and Rudolf Steiner. Oh, really? That, that is an interesting place to first come across that. Yeah, so somebody gave me books about them, and it hit me like a, like a brick wall or something, that the kind of doctor I didn't want to be was not the only kind of doctor there is. Yes. And so then I went to medical school from day one, essentially thinking, you know, this is nonsense, but I'm going to do it so I can become, quote, a doctor. And right, I, because you have so much respect as a doctor, and if you want to do something alternative and you don't have the MD after your name, then it's, it's an uphill battle, and uh, people don't want to let you. Right, but they, you know, I, for instance, in, in, even in my medical school and residency, like I refused to uh, give vaccines or learn how to do that. Mm. And, and that was very, I, I refused to do circumcisions. And, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of things. And they, they, they had trouble with me, but I was, I guess you could say, smart enough that if they, ans if they asked me, you know, what causes strep throat or how to kill it, I could say penicillin, right? I was yes. <laughs> good at that. You could regurgitate the facts that they wanted you to regurgitate. Well, right. They couldn't flunk me because I passed all the tests. They just didn't like me. Yeah. Um, I think we have some similarities in our personality. I, I think for me, the, um, the thing that started it really, really had nothing to do with germ theory, but I was studying biology. And I, I think in my second or third year, I, I took a course in the economic impact of plants. And for your term paper, you had to choose a plant and uh, you know, do an essay on, on what the economic impact was, how much money it generated, what it was used for, all that kind of stuff. So I chose sugar, uh, but I didn't really focus on the economic impact. I focused on the health impact, and I, I came across all these documents in the, in the library, you know, this relatively small university. There was a guy, I think his name was Davies, who studied the dental impact of sugar, and then there was a guy named Yudkin, I think, who, who was a famous yeah. nutritionist in England right. who studied, you know, the heart disease and, and sort of the metabolic impacts of, of sugar. And so out of this little project, I, I got, you know, here's a really significant disease cause, and it is being embraced by our society. It's, right. you know, it's almost on a pedestal. Which, which started me thinking about, you know, disease as much more than, oh, somebody's got the flu, uh, you know, HIV, all of these infectious causes. I, I started to see environmental causes, and uh, it, it stuck with me. Um, and, and as time goes on, you start to see more and more of, of this. Right, exactly. Um, now, being part of the Western Price Foundation, um, you know, your dietary advice is uh, lots of meat, you know, protein, fats, vegetables, but limited carbohydrates. I think that's kind of a 
high level summary is is that about right you know that's not what i would say uh, mm. i would say that what you know what price basically found was that there were 14 groups of people out there which means there were some who had who were and some who weren't who were as far as it goes quote perfectly healthy mm -hmm. and, and that means they had perfect teeth. And I often point out to people, I mean, he was a dentist, but if you were a, you know, a kidney, uh, sorry, a, a liver specialist, and you were going around the world looking for people with perfect livers, right? That, that would be hard to figure out who has a perfect liver and who doesn't. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of bias towards the people who die often don't have perfect liver livers. So finding people who died in traffic accidents or something whose liver were perfect up to that moment would be probably more difficult right but you can with perfect teeth because you should have you know all 32 teeth no cavities no crowding no mm. orthodontics no nothing so that was an easy study and so you could do that and i would say it's not it's not that it's a high meat diet or high anything diet it's that people ate food in its natural state from mm -hmm. their environment the, right. the other the other thing they did was they they you know some people say well they didn't process the food but but they did actually because they knew enough to to take cabbage for instance and make sauerkraut out yeah or um, kimchi in in asia yeah i mean that's true there's a tremendous number of fermented foods i mean right. cheese is a, another example yogurt kefir right i mean they, those didn't just come out of nowhere uh, no, they came out of all the people who Price studied did that, those sort of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it, you, you end up with, if you, know, if, you, if you think properly about what he found, he found the rules of eating. And it's not that you should eat a lot of meat or so, although he didn't, he, he, he said, I kept looking for a vegan group to include because I wanted to say that that was possible as well, and he never found one. Yes, that basically said that's just not compatible with being having healthy teeth, period. So, you know, so be it. The, the point is, and, and I think one of the things if you say, well, what, why did I go a different path? It was very early on, I was convinced that the way I would put it is Goethe was right. Goethe was in a sense, the predecessor of Rudolf Steiner and the founder of Anthroposophy. And he said two things which I think are relevant here. Number one, never start with theories, always start with observations. Mm -hmm. And number two, how do you know that if you want to understand a living thing, you should use a microscope and not a macroscope? Mm. Now, we, we assume that okay, I want to know about my, how, whether this person is healthy, I should, you know, first kill them and then cut them up and see what's in there. Right. Right. And, and we all accept that as if, you know, God himself said, that's how you understand life is a kill it, B cut it up and poison it. And it's not necessarily true that that's right. Why don't you understand how this dolphin you know, interacts with its environment. Like maybe somebody poisoned the water. Mm -hmm. right? I was just a, reading uh, a, an article from Scotland where the fish farmers 
um, have dumped 12 tons of formaldehyde into the lake to, uh, I guess, sterilize their fish, maybe to get rid of sea lice or something like that. Or to and, get rid of the coronavirus. Oh, maybe the coronavirus. 12 tons of formaldehyde. And they're saying, oh, it dissolves in water. It's not a problem. Right. I mean, after all, if a, if a goat and a pawpaw fruit can pass, <laughs> yes. why not a bunch of fish? I mean, right. So, so the, it, those two things guide me. Number one, I don't believe in, in, you know, in anything because there's a theory that we're supposed to accept is true. Right, right. It's, the whole of, of Western science seems to have been, have become you know, we believe in the germ theory, therefore we're gonna spend, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars trying to prove it. Or we believe, another one of mine, that the heart pumps the blood, which clearly it doesn't. And then they spend billions of dollars with theories of trying to prove that. But the problem is, you know, simple observations and trusting one's own judgment <laughs> just don't bear that out, and they're all screwed up. Uh, from a macroscopic point of view, like if you if you step back and you're you, you know you're hundreds of feet in the air looking down at at this tribe or this village where people you know have perfect teeth and eat you know a really good diet, it's also more than their diet, right? It's it's like what Absolutely. is their lifestyle. And right. many other aspects of it, like what's their level of stress? Is this a warlike group of people, or is this people who are are living in in somewhat more harmony with other people and and with the environment? Right, and and, and their the way they think. You know, we we come at this with theories that oh no, your health can't possibly relate it to be how you think or mm. your work or whether you use money, or whether you have to get on the subway, or whether your water is full of you know, 164 different toxins. The, the point of it is, why are all these things excluded without any evidence? I mean, and I'm not saying that you know, people who believe in the germ theory or any other theory, that by definition makes them sick. But on the other hand, I don't know that it isn't the case either. And that to me is what investigation or actual science should be about. Just, mm. you know, what do you see? Now, it may be that it's people who, you know, are warlike have rotten teeth. I mean, I don't know that. And mm. I don't know that it's not either. So I don't, I, I don't right. think we could do science. I mean, that was Goethe's whole point. Just, just stick with the facts, trust yourself, trust your observations, and not only that, but practice observation. And he mm. actually taught people how to practice. And I was very specifically, you know, trained by some people in how to observe and right. how to ask questions. And, and so I've been doing that for, you know, 40 years. And uh, yeah, that's yeah, important. Very good at it. They don't. Yeah, as a as a botanist, you know, one of the things I would I would walk across a hill for exercise or something, and I think, you know, right now I'm seeing two or three different kinds of plants, but I know that if I get down on my hands and knees and I start writing down, you know, what's actually out there, 
the mosses, the lichens, the, the little flowers, the different kinds of trees and bushes, that I might be able to come up with a hundred different plants that are actually on the hill. But when we walk across the hill, we just see a bunch of green stuff. You know, we right. see a bunch of trees and a bunch of bushes and a bunch of grass. And we don't realize it's actually a very rich environment. We just walk um, right, right through it. And the natural environment is far richer, actually, if you look at it, than a city environment. Right. I, I mean, I've observed in um, you know big cities like Boston or New York, it seems to especially be on the East Coast, that some people seem to you know, behave like they're excessively stressed, right? They're not behaving by what I would call normally. Yeah, everybody, basically. Not every, but a lot of people. Yes, yes. I mean, I think a lot of people I deal mean, with stress. Normal now. Uh, yeah, it's only worse now. I mean, it's bad enough having, you know, uh, a low-paying job and, you know, maybe earning, working two or three jobs and trying to deal with all kinds of social and family problems. And, and now you don't have a job. And right. you still got all the same problems, but now you got the stress of, am I, you know, when am I going to work again? When am I going to yeah. start seeing some uh, money come, come in? And you have to breathe in your own exhaust, you know, which... Yeah, with the masks. Yeah. Yeah, I was just but, reading... You know, you know, I just wanted to say that it's interesting when you look at this, what we're talking about and the change in how we um, prove viral causation. It, it went from basically observation, right? That's what Koch's postulates are, or mm. Rivers, period. And then if you read the new, the new public health version of how to prove viral causation, what it's, I think they're called the Hill criteria or something. Right, right. One of the criteria is you have a bunch of people being sick and you can't think of another reason. And, and you deliberately don't. It, it, it's like Zika was a perfect example of this. There was a paper published in New England Journal of Medicine, I think, which was actually planted by the CDC. Like when I looked at the authors, they all worked for the CDC. And it said, you know, we're gonna prove Zika causation. And, and there was a statement in there that, you know, we considered all other possible causes, but they didn't list them. So I was thinking, did you consider all the vaccine programs that are going on in Brazil? Did you consider the fact that you're adding pesticides to the water supply yeah. to kill larvae? Did you consider the agricultural pesticides that are used heavily in that area and, and I'm sure they didn't and that's why they didn't list the list of causes potential causes because they actually omitted all the environmental causes right or what if the person is just stupid and they can't think of any causes I mean you, that's like you can't that's what I mean so that's a person or a theory that doesn't go from observation like you said so what about this what about this what do i observe here are people spraying this or injecting that or whatever you know and that's not to say that i necessarily know that any one of those is the cause right that's what we're supposed to find out oh, well instead, i mean this uh, cdc's uh, um aim is find the virus that best 
fits. I mean, it's kind of like doing a jigsaw puzzle and there's a couple of being mixed up and you're missing a piece and you, so you just ram a piece in that doesn't really fit, but it's yeah. good enough to, to um, serve the end of saying we found another virus. Right, exactly. They, they just use, they, they start with the theory and then they try to fit in facts, which do, do or don't, you know, and then, you know, I was just talking to the head of this lab the other day that specializes in, in testing, you know, coronavirus testing. Mm -hmm. I decided to just play dumb just for fun, although I must admit it wasn't much fun. But, <laughs> but anyway, she, she says, it's an example. I said, so how do you do this testing? They said, well, we do a PCR test and that looks for the virus. And I said, does the PCR test mean that they're sick? Well, it means that they have the virus. They might be sick or they might not be sick. And I said, well, how do you know if they're, if they're, that the, the virus is causing them to be sick? And she said, you do a PCR test. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. Are you the Mad Hatter from Alice? <laughs> I was quoting Alice in Wonderland quite a little, quite a bit at the beginning of this because it, it's it's like I had no other explanation for this kind of world that we we live in, where there's all this circular reasoning and people don't realize that it's circular, or or people are doing insane things. Right, but David, let me let me suggest something about that because. You know, I was thinking about talking to you, and I was uh, just let me just be frank here. I was saying, you know, I hope he doesn't ask me about like antibody tests or <laughs> just because obviously you know more about that than I do. But I mean, I I've read all your things, and I I I could probably spout it off if I needed to. But but here's my here's what I wanted to get to where I think I can contribute. Okay, can I? Can mm -hmm. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. So here I am, you know, I'm writing this chapter about, you know, how, how they actually, you know, quote, found the virus, which means they how they didn't find the virus or how they do the tests. Right. I mean, the te it's, all just, it's all just complete craziness. And so I write this, spent, you know, four hours writing it. Then I talked to my friend and I said, I had this funny feeling as I was writing this because it was so completely obvious that the whole thing is a sham and if you just use basic logic you you come to a completely different conclusion and yet because it was so obvious i even even me after 40 years the the occasional thought came into my mind i must be wrong mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how can everybody I, else be wrong right. it's gotta be me how could this be? I must be stupid or I, I don't understand. This is so obvious. This is such like you can't say things like this quote from the head of infectious disease at Wake Forest says, you know, you, an antibody test means you're either immune or you're not immune. That's right. Well, if you if you cut if you cut the deck of cards and you pull out a spade, that either means you're immune or you're not immune. Right. <laughs> Has the same Crazy. predictive value. <laughs> right, I mean, what other choice is there? Maybe you're possibly immune or... It's like it, it, a refrigerator and the guy says, 
Well, it'll either keep your food cold or it won't. If you want a refrigerator that works all the time, then you, you got to pay for the more expensive model. <laughs> right. And so, you know, why is that? And, and all I can say is we're all so conditioned that, that we can't possibly trust our own, you know, insight or logic or thinking that there must be somebody out there who knows better. There must be some wise men out there who are actually guiding the ship. And, and I, I saw an interview with Kerry Mullis and mm. he went for, for almost a decade thinking, I don't know, I must've missed something here. Right. And, until he was invited as a, as a Nobel laureate to meet the other wise men. And he goes up to Montagne and says, you know, what's the evidence? And he said, he said, basically, I don't have any. <laughs> and, Montagne, and, if you get him alone, can be quite honest. Gallo, you know, he's, he's always the pit bull. It doesn't matter yeah. if you woke him up in the middle of the night or um, whatever, you're going to get the same response from Gallo. Right. Yeah, Montagne's done some interesting things, but he did say that. And, and it hit uh, Mullis right then. He, I think he said to himself, hey, wait a minute, I'm one of the wise men. <laughs> I don't see it. And so at that point, the whole world changes. Yes. I, I mean, I guess when you get a Nobel Prize, you can put yourself up um, kind of on Mount Olympus of intellectual endeavors. So you don't need to feel this inferiority, which, which a lot of people feel because you know they don't have the credentials. And even if you have the credentials, you don't have the Nobel Prize to to stamp it. But I mean, it's interesting what's happened to Montaigne because he's, he's now treated as the mad uncle, you know, right. the, the guy who comes to Thanksgiving dinner and he has a tendency to say really weird things, but you know, he was a war hero many years ago. So, so everybody's going to ignore what he says and just pretend that nothing happened. Right. Because <laughs> he, he does say something very interesting, which I think I, I don't know how you, if you would go along with this, but I think is one of the keys to understanding what a quote virus actually is. And I don't know if you want me to get into that. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's what we're here for. We're gonna have a discussion. Yeah. So, and and I would admit that this is a theory, and I don't think I came to this on my own. But 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 I have I have a sense that there's something to this. So. My thought is, is the usual way we understand uh, genetics, meaning survival of the fittest and natural selection, is all wrong. Mm. And, and the reason I say that is, is the following. If you, if you take a group of people and, you know, and then you introduce a new toxin, like whatever, DDT, and there's one person in that village or place who has, quote, a mutation that allows them to detoxify that poison, right? So right. That they have the survival and they and they they win this thing and they pass their gene on through natural selection and reproduction to all the rest of the people, and then the whole world has the gene and we're all good. The problem with that's the sort of net normal genetic theory, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is, what if it happened to be a 60-year-old woman who has postmenopausal woman who has the mutation, and she doesn't have any more children, and the whole thing doesn't happen? 
Right, right. Or what if it's somebody who doesn't have children? Or what if it's somebody who has a child and they get a Gardasil vaccine and they get infertile and then they don't have children? Right. So, so the whole thing doesn't work like that. In fact, if it did work, it would take 10,000 years to spread through the population and then it would be too late because there would be a new poison and we'd be all dead. Uh, yeah, the rate we're generating new poisons, like I don't think, um, you know, our right. genome can adapt in, in that slow way of, of natural selection if, it, if, as you say, it right. does so actually happen. Rapid response team. And I think the rapid response team is actually what we call viruses, which are genetic material that have a resonance. Now, what do I mean by a resonance? You know, in my world, all energy, or sorry, all matter is in interplay with, with energy fields. I mean, that's sort of modern physics, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is no real substance. Of course, there's the appearance of substance, and but but if you look at it from a you know a quantum physics point of view, it's all space and energy that somehow, in some way that none of us understand, congeal into this stuff. So one of the things it congeals into is genetic material, which then may be encapsulated in what we erroneously call a virus. Now. Mm. Montagne's experiments were if you take a piece of genetic material and you put it in water and then you put it next to another beaker there so there's no physical connection and then you put that you put water in there and then free nucleic acids and then you add energy to the system like like light that there will be a resonance phenomena and the second beaker will actually form the same you know, RNA sequence or, or genes as the first one. Right, and that's, that's where people say Montaigne's lost it, and yeah, uh, <laughs> we have to treat him like a crazy person. But I mean, it does make some sense, and it doesn't seem physically impossible. Right, so you have this, if that's true, and that's the part where he's not crazy, except everybody thinks he is, if mm. that's true, then then, then the mechanism of adaptation on a, quote, genetic level, that's a funny word, I think, for this, but you, you need some code for this protein that allows you to detoxify, you know, DDT, and you got to spread it quickly. And the best way to do that is through this resonance phenomena. So your body says, Here, here's a package of this uh, protein or the, uh, sorry, the package of the, the, uh, the genetic material with some proteins, it has a resonance, it goes out into the world, and then the other organisms, and maybe even across species, actually make this sequence to protect themselves. Well, now, that is, that is a, a, a very interesting uh, idea. Now, the re one of the reasons I think that, and again, I, I'm not saying, David, that I can prove that, Mm, it would be very, very difficult to prove. But uh, uh, I mean, you, you started by saying you need observations, not theories. But I mean, I think theories are also important because they make you think and then they can change how you observe things, right? Like you, right. Yes. you, you shouldn't be observing to try to prove your theory, but you should be observing to see if observations are compatible with the theory yeah. or not. Right. But because one of the reasons I, I, I came to this was 
I think there's very good evidence that that's how trees work. They, if, if you get a bunch of beetles eating a tree, then mm. the tree put out chemicals and even sequences, I, I believe, of, of genetic material that go maybe through the mycelium and through the you know, mushrooms and fungi. Right, right. But they go into the soil and they tell the other trees to make an immune response because they're going to be eaten by beetles otherwise. And, mm. and, and the, the point of that is if that's true, which I, and I would love to see more studies and more observations about that right. and find them. Again, I, I'm not saying this is the truth. I'm just saying this is one way to explain this. It changes the world from a, a place where everybody's out fighting for themselves in this sort of genetic lottery the world then looks like a cooperative venture where the trees are cooperating because they know if the other trees die, they're going to be exposed to the sun too much and that's going to kill them. Mm -hmm. So they need those other trees. They need that fungus. They need, they probably even need the beetles to strengthen their immune system or whatever it's, I don't know if you even call it an immune system, a, a strengthen right. their ability to resist. Like I mm -hmm. wouldn't even, call that an immune system right it's just a resistance program or something uh, yeah and and um you know trees are connected together like you say the mycelia which are actually like symbiotic fungi which are necessary for many trees maybe all trees to survive you know all are true. all connected together yeah. and uh, so there is there is this connection so so passing some kind of information along that connection doesn't seem impossible. And I mean, just like even the most warlike of human societies has to treat its own people differently. I mean, I mean, you, you can't be warlike and kill everybody. You can't kill your own family, right? Like you, yeah. you have to have this sort of ethic, like we're in it together and we don't kill each other. We just kill outside of our group. That's, that's kind of the ethic of the warrior. Um, so that, that means that, you know, everybody looks after, well, not everybody, there's obviously exceptions, but you know, most people look after their own children, they look after their spouse, they look after their relatives and things like that, and to create a cohesive uh, community. I mean, right. it would be nice if, if people would broaden that and uh, you know, uh, have concerns for more people. But not but, just people, but organisms like mm -hmm. bacteria and fungi and trees and toads and everything because the reality is it's all part of this massive communication system which is does you know the idea that it's natural selection and survival of the fittest that was a economic model not a biological model yeah malthus uh you know it makes me think about the hedgerows in in england i mean the the, the fields used to be enclosed by hedges and those hedges were the refuge for, you know, the wild animals uh, in, in England, the hedgehogs and the mice and, you know, birds could nest there and things like that. But then, you know, factory farming came along and they wanted bigger and bigger fields. And so out went the hedgerows and a massive destruction of um, English wildlife ensued. But in the long run, you know, not having those hedges, they probably acted as barrier for loss of soil for erosion and you know um sort of trapped water 
and, and have probably many benefits. And factory farming, if it goes on long enough, just destroys the soil and you end up with a desert left behind. So in the long run, it's an economically stupid um, yeah. uh, means. But you know, in the short run, which is how corporations work, you know, for the first 10 or 20 years, it, it produces huge um, profits. Right. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to um, specifically talking about the uh, coronavirus. You kind of indicated that you're thinking at the beginning that this doesn't make sense, this is crazy, but on the other hand, maybe it's me who's crazy because everybody else seems to be drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, I don't really think that, every, uh, that I'm the crazy one anymore. No, I, no. I was, I, I was just saying that everybody, e even somebody you know, 40 years into it, that thought comes up. It's mm -hmm. just, and so if it happens in me, I can only imagine people who haven't spent 40 years literally daily reading, reading and working with these concepts. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you listen to the mainstream media, you might, you might sit down and think, you know, there's things about this that don't make sense. And then you listen to the mainstream media and it's such a powerful wave of propaganda that, that um, I think most people just get washed along with it because they're so certain. There's so many people dying and, and um, you yeah. know, everything is so simple and factual when it comes to the mainstream media. But if you've done any research at all, you know that a lot of what they're saying is, is not based on facts. I mean, the mathematical models, I think, are the biggest crime of this, this whole thing. That some smart mathematical people with limited biomedical knowledge came up with mathematical models that predicted massive death rates. Like I think in England at first, the uh, Neil Ferguson model was 500,000. Um, and, and that drove the politicians, herded them into a, a stampede. Yeah, right. And um, I've been recently took an interest in masks because that's one thing that I sort of affects me personally. So from a selfish point of view, I thought, you know, if anything happens around here, if anything's gonna be made mandatory, it's masks. And um, already, you, I don't think you can fly an airplane in Canada without a mask on. <clears throat> yeah. And I'm worried that if I go to the grocery store, they're gonna force me to wear a mask and things like that. So I, I did a little bit of research and there's not a lot of evidence, but most of it seems to be saying that masks don't work. And uh, just today I came across an interesting statement by a couple of doctors in England, one of them is a deputy medical health officer or something, and one of them uh, works for Public Health England. These were from March before the dogma on masks was imposed. But the, the woman, the public health officer, had an interesting um, way to look at it. She said, you know, you come home, you take the mask off, you drop it on the counter, counter's not clean, um, if there was virus on the outside, I mean, this is assuming there's a virus, then, you know, eventually the virus is going to get onto the counter and it's going to get picked up by your mask. And now it's on the inside of your mask. So you put the mask back on your face and now you're breathing in the, the virus. Um, so even from a totally mainstream point of view, the masks don't work and may well make things worse. And yet the mainstream media is... If you're not wearing a mask, you're being irresponsible. Look at all those Trump supporters rallying without masks on. They're all going to be dead soon. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, masks, you know, masks were a way that were used in slavery times to, to mark the people as having no voice. So yes, history of wearing masks. Masks are used in shamanic rituals to alter your personality and to actually create the experience of illness. So there's a whole lot of reasons for masks, none of which have anything to do with keeping a virus out. No, no, it, it's insane. And, it, and it's, it's kind of a, encapsulates the irrationality of this whole right. thing because people cling to their masks like it was some kind of religious icon. Yeah, uh, it's, that's what it is. Yeah, like what did they wear with the Black Plague, like a clove of garlic or something? They they walked around with something to ward off the Black Plague, and it, and this is this is kind of similar. It's equally right. irrational. Garlic is a lot better for you. <laughs> yes, at least you can at least you can eat the garlic, and it's good right. for you. Garlic's good for you. Yeah, right. I mean I've that's seen that's people with crocheted masks, which are obviously by any standard completely useless. And, and yet the people, you know, it's, it's just, from a point of view of a psychological placebo, it's just as effective. Yeah, no, it's, there's no like biology or science behind any of this really. It's just, as, as you very appropriately said in your first paper, this is a, you know, a whatever you call it, epidemic of propaganda. Yeah, epidemic of testing, yes, yeah, which, which fuels the, the propaganda. Although One thing... I, I think, David, though, I, I would say that, and maybe, again, I'm not sure if we disagree about this, but in studying, you know, that there are some people who are getting sick, and in the yep. way they're getting sick, I, I actually stand behind my original theory as to why there are some people who are getting sick. And I, if you want, I can share that with you. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> again, I, I, I don't want to get into a thing of, are there more people getting sick now than usual? And I'm not sure about that. And a lot of people know that. It's hard to so, tell right now, yeah. Right. So let, let's not do that, except say, there are some people who are getting sick, and it seems a little different than how they mm -hmm. got sick before. Now, again, I don't want to push that too far, but that's what it seems like to me. If that's true, and you believe the, the clearest descriptions of the observations of, I think, fairly reliable clinicians about what is happening to these people, it comes into basically two categories. One is they're having a hyperactive immune response. And this affects mm. their lungs and their you know, heart and, and, and other organs. So that's one feature. And the other is they have a strange kind of hypoxia. Mm -hmm. So if, if you just take those two as valid observations, to me, it's very clear, and it was in the beginning, the two most important things that do that. So how do you get immune activation? You basically expose people to aluminum. And that's why they put aluminum in vaccines to activate your immune response. There's mm -hmm. a wealth of information. I wrote a whole book called, you know, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and Childhood Illness on the use of aluminum to overstimulate an immune response. 
I mean, again, that's why they put it in vaccines. And we, we have a highly vaccinated population and we spray aluminum nanoparticles in the air, particularly over certain places, which then get breathed into the lungs, which cause an overactive immune response in the lung. That doesn't strike me as, as anything that actually should even be unusual or controversial. It's just worse now. Mm. So that, that part of it. The other part of it is why do you have hypoxia? And to me, the, the basic reason for that is that the new frequencies called 5G do two things which we know of. One is they essentially biodegrade the oxygen in the air to make it less utilizable by, you know, by the metabolism of the person. And the other is they interfere with the ability of the mitochondria to use oxygen and generate energy. So the sum total of both of those is, you know, with certain people, they will have a kind of hypoxic experience. And you put them behind a mask and it makes it even worse. And so those two things, you know, there's some epidemiology that correlates with that. There's, you know, looking at the air quality in those places correlates with that. And even you could say, why does, why does grouping people together in either a cruise ship or New York City or Wuhan, because those are the places where these electromagnetic fields are the most concentrated because that's where everybody and every system is walking around with cell phones and computers and there's just a high, more highly concentrated electromagnetic field. Um, the, other, the other thing I would yeah, say is, this is, you know, this doesn't prove anything either, but the two things that have absolutely convincingly ramped up since this whole thing has started is number one, the putting up of 5G towers. There's been, you know, a hundred in the last month in just in the city that I live, that I know mm -hmm. of. And I have never seen so much spraying of, you know, stuff in the air, which, you know, there's papers on exactly what the contents. I have friends who've measured the aluminum levels in the rain and in the soil that is correlating with this. And that has increased dramatically since this whole thing has started. And that's what worries me about this, because essentially then you can, you can kind of make as much disease as you want. Uh, yeah, I, I'm having a hard time with the 5G thing. I, I do perhaps have a conflict of interest because I, I do work in that area. Um, I know that 60 gigahertz does interact with oxygen I don't think it's in widespread use, but, but the problem is that there's harmonics, just like mm -hmm. like, and so if you do if you do resonance frequencies either in five gigahertz or twelve or any, you know, it's it's just like you don't have to have resonance of the same octave of C on a piano to create an effect, right? On I understand that, but I mean, there's places like France that have no 5G that had a similar epidemic. I've been more focused on, there is a strong correlation with air pollution, um, no question. I haven't seen anything regarding aluminum, but you know, I, I agree with you that aluminum is highly toxic. 
particulate matter, nitrogen, nitrous oxide, um, ozone, things like that have been correlated with testing positive and a, and a worse outcome. Another thing I think is, is a really serious issue is the isolation of old people, because I think that the visitors to old people are the people who make sure that the treatment is okay. And I've been seeing stuff recently about sedation of people, mainly on the basis that they've got COVID. And uh, you know, I'm very concerned about whether in old folks' homes with friends and relatives out of sight so that nobody could see what was happening, um, that there's been over-sedation of old people, which has led to their death. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, and again, I, I agree that all these things that I say, they're not proven and they're, they need more information. I, mm -hmm. I think evidence and I agree with what yours, you know, I'm not saying it's not particulate matter and all this. And then to, to answer your question, I totally agree that, that, you know, the treatments that end up being used uh, that you very appropriately pointed out, you know, um, ventilators and, you know, all this, that, <laughs> I mean, that's just ridiculous. Well, yeah, like a 97% death rate on yeah. people yeah. over 65 that's in New York. I mean, that, that just shocks me. And yet I've still had people say, well, they all would have died if it wasn't for the ventilators. So they actually saved lives. <laughs> I just, I, you, you know, there's no evidence for that. No evidence at all. So, but, but right. you want to believe that it's it's working. A anyway, we've I, I can't believe how long we've been talking. It's been a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot. I hope you have too. Yes, I am very. Again, I, I, David, I just want to again say how grateful I am because when this story is eventually told, you are going to be one of the heroes of this, and I, I hope just because we may not agree on everything that that's not a reason for uh, no that and i'm i'm pleased we need to we need to be generating theories in the absence of complete data and after this is over just like after sars was over a lot more information came out when people reviewed charts and they reviewed statistics and it was possible to look back people could say yes the drugs killed people, the intubation killed people. And I, I think after this is over, you know, some strong threads are going to emerge. Um, you know, we're dealing with a dearth of information right now, but uh, we need to be starting to think about all the different possible causes for, for what's going on. Because at the, at the root, all I'm saying is, like, stop spreading all this shit in the air and see what happens. The worst thing that could happen is everybody gets healthier. <laughs> Just right? think how much money the medical system would lose. That's crazy yeah. talk. Right, but, but that's the worst thing that could happen is if you stop yes. spraying crap in the air is that he would say, wow, I can breathe a little better. That's good. Yes. You know? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I, I, I really enjoyed this, this talk and I'm sure my audience, many people have asked me to have you on. So everybody out there who, who asked for this, you got what you wanted and I think you're really going to enjoy this. Okay, David. Thank you again. Thank you and, and okay. goodbye. Bye-bye. Time for some feedback. Jim via email. I just listened to your show on antibody testing. Great job again. I'm now fully convinced that all this testing is being done 
for the sole purpose of maintaining this crisis for as long as possible. Deborah via email, I'm a listener of your podcast and have read quite a few of your articles. In the last few months, your voice has been sanity in the storm. You speak complete sense and it's refreshing. In particular, your interview with Dr. Kaufman was brilliant. Priska via Facebook, thank you for your incredible, thoughtful, and thorough work. Much appreciated, really. David via Facebook, a different David, not me. Thanks for the brave work and the forum to discuss it. Asking fundamental questions, interrogating assumptions. I've learned much through this stuff. Big questions about the viral theory and all that goes with it. Even if it's not all right, at least I know what I don't know. Fear is the mind killer. Mindy on Facebook, your work is so valuable, thank you. Justin on Facebook, been listening to your podcast. Damn, I can't believe I didn't run into you years ago. Amazing stuff, man. George via email, thanks for all your great content. I've recently come to the understanding because of my research and trying to understand this fake corona panic. Um, as an aside, we had to name one of our newborn calves on our little ranch corona. But the germ theory is not true at all, and the understanding of viruses as med medicine and microbiology know them is completely wrong. I'm a dentist here in the U.S. and have labored under this false assumption for over 40 years. Fortunately, I'm at the end of my career and won't have to practice under these falsehoods any longer. I'm still trying to wrap my head around all the disease, death, suffering, and destruction of lives and livelihoods that the mistaken assumptions about viruses, now especially, and in the past through medical treatment like vaccines, has caused. Thanks for the critical thinking. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to episode 257 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit the monthly donations of any amount to 